0: those of you who watch news on TV, like Tommy, may have an idea of what my title means. Um, Think about a typical news broadcast. You very often get some seriously awful news to witness. Um, Now, since I wrote this, I've, I've updated it slightly. I've just put a few things on here, a few bad news items. I'm sure you can think of lots more. So, at the moment, we've Seen Hurricane Irma's destruction in the Caribbean, uh, plus the devastating floods that happened in Texas just the week before. There's been, of course, the ramp up in tension between North Korea and the USA over nuclear weapons, and it seems like it's been going on forever. Here in the UK, these ongoing discussions and lack of any opti- optimism in our politics, particularly regarding Brexit, um, you can think of. I'm sure you can think of dozens more things that that we just see in the news, and it's just. Depressing and horrible, um, and there's sometimes you get with 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 these bad news stories. Sometimes you get a miraculous story, don't you? You get somebody escaping death, and you just, you see it, and, you, and it it does tend to to lighten the mood slightly. Um, but then, of course, that doesn't focus solely on the hundreds of other people. Who, who weren't so fortunate, people who lost their lives, things like that. Um, even the weather and the sports news seems to be bad news most of the time, doesn't it? Or is that just me? Um, there is, however, usually a short story at the end of the TV news which is supposedly good news. Um, I think back to the days of Trevor MacDonald on the news at 10 when after a very depressing half an hour of news you would get a few seconds of light-hearted nonsense. Um, I found one such example, and uh, when you hear the prices, you'll realise it's a pretty old news story, Um, but it always starts, and finally, it says, this one was, um, and finally, when 11-year-old Wayne Bass from Birmingham hopped on board a bus with his school's pet hamster in a cage under his arm, the mean driver charged him 36 pence, and another 45 pence for the hamster. Wayne was taking Sweep the hamster back to his school, having looked after him for the weekend. But when bus company chiefs heard about the potential PR disaster, they moved quickly. Not only was Wayne given a free travel card, but Sweep was issued with his own bus pass as well. It's as if they were saying, so there you go, finally some good news. But it's not exactly what we'd want all the news to be like, is it? These sorts of stories are really just frivolous items to make you laugh for a few seconds and take your mind off all the awful news that you've had to watch for the previous twenty-nine and a bit minutes. So think about this, if you could decide what happened across the whole world for one day and then have the chance to present the news that evening, what would you want to say? You surely wouldn't have wars or murders or divisive politics, or natural disasters, would you? You would want to show everyone that the world was at peace, that city neighbourhoods were safe to live in, that the people running cities and countries all worked together to make everything fairer for everyone. No one would go hungry, no one would be exploited by someone else. We'd all be happy, we'd all have the right weather conditions, and we'd win at every sport. Now, of course, I'm sure you'll you'll probably know where I'm going with this. Good news in the context of the Bible is the gospel, the gospel message. So the rest of this talk is essentially going to be a simplified look at what the good news of the gospel, as presented to us in God's word, the Bible, is all about. In our um, opening reading in Isaiah 52, We had the phrase good news mentioned. Uh, My references are from the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, And in verse 7 of Isaiah 52, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So the first point to make is that the gospel message of good news isn't just in the first four books of the New Testament. They may be called the four gospels, but the whole Bible fits together, and the Old Testament frequently hints at what would happen later in the New Testament. So what is this good news? Well, this verse talks about peace, about happiness, and about salvation. And if you take nothing else away from today, just try to keep those three words from that verse in your mind. The message from God throughout the Bible gives us good news about peace, happiness and salvation. And the last part of the verse gives us a reason for this good news when it says your God reigns. Hopefully you'll see, as we look at what the rest of the Bible has to say, it is only because of God that we can have a prospect of good news at all. Anything else is the very temporary source of good news, which raises a smile and is then quickly forgotten about. Let's now jump forward and have a look at the the actual gospel books. So first of all, we'll read some verses in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2, and from verse 4 to 7, it talks about the birth of Jesus. But I want us to read from verse 8. Luke chapter 2, reading from verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So we're told here that the shepherds were afraid when they saw the angel. And yet the message that they were given was one of good news. They were told to not be afraid. They were being given joyful good news. They were told about peace on earth. And, they, and then we're told that they left glorifying and praising God because of this. Then eight days later, in this same chapter, we're told that Jesus was taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph. And we learn that a man called Simeon, who was expecting the birth, got to hold the baby Jesus in his arms Let's just read from verse 27 of the same chapter. And Simeon came in spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon was overjoyed to finally meet the baby who would become salvation for the world. And we're told that, um, that he wouldn't die until this happened, so he knew that he could now die in peace. And the Bible is full of stories of people full of peace, happiness, and salvation, after learning about the good news given by God. Um, we'll now jump forward to the time of Jesus' ministry, when he preached this good news and told people to repent of their sins. Um, Matthew chapter 4, um, and just reading verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is to acknowledge that you have sinned against God. You have walked away from Him, and now you want to turn around and walk back towards Him. The reason we're given for this call to repentance is because the kingdom is at hand. And the idea of it being at hand is of it being close. And you can view that in two different ways. I'll talk a bit later about how aspects of the kingdom can be seen as, being, as happening now. But I want to, first of all to talk about a final future fulfilment of that kingdom. Which is usually what Christadelphians mean when they talk about the kingdom. We believe that the kingdom of God will one day happen here on earth with Jesus ruling the whole world from Jerusalem. Although we don't know when it will happen, we pray for it to happen soon, and we believe that by committing to following Jesus, and by the incredible grace of God, we are promised a place in that kingdom. I could spend hours talking about aspects of peace, happiness and salvation which relate to the future kingdom of God on earth, but we've only got so long, so I'll try to keep things focused as we go through various books of the Bible, seeing clues as to what this future kingdom will be like. So first of all, let's have a look at Daniel chapter 2. And in this chapter, we read about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had a dream of a huge image made of different metals, which Daniel then interpreted ...as being major world kingdoms which would follow the Babylonian empire... ...and which would eventually be followed by the intervention of God. Daniel chapter 2, I'm just reading verse 44. And it says... In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom... ...that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end... And it shall stand forever. And here we get the idea that this isn't just another kingdom, which, like all the others in the world, have had good and bad periods, they've had growth, they've had decline, they've had war, they've had peace, and eventually end up being replaced by a different power or just breaking up. Instead... This kingdom, we're told, will take over all of the other kingdoms of the world and will last forever. So I want us to look at Bible passages which hint at these three key words that I keep mentioning, peace, happiness and salvation, thinking about a future kingdom of God on earth. So first of all, peace. Let's have a look at what is promised in Isaiah chapter 2. So, Isaiah chapter 2, and reading from verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And that last verse we've read, verse 4, the words of that are carved into the wall of the UN headquarters in New York, along with a statue of a man beating his sword. These are incredibly high ideals, aren't they? Because we know that the UN, along with many other organisations, have mostly failed to prevent wars from happening. I would suggest that the only way for everlasting peace is for the rest of the passage to come true. In verse 3, we read that people will want to approach God. They'll want to learn of his ways and obey his laws, rather than learning the ways of war, which so often seems to be the only option for sorting out the world's problems. I've got one other passage about peace, which we're going to look at, in this part of the talk. And that's also in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, And this is a prophecy about the future Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, I'm reading from verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and evermore. So Jesus is prophesied to be the Prince of Peace. Not only that, but he will rule with righteous justice. So often in the world, We see guilty people getting away with terrible crimes. And so often we also see innocent people being wrongfully imprisoned or punished. Clearly, Jesus will be a very different sort of leader and a judge. Once he establishes peace, there will be no end to that peace. We can barely imagine what that feels like. Of course, we here in the West generally only experience war from a video clip or a newspaper rather than actually being caught up in it. So imagine how much more amazing this prospect is for people who are really caught up in actual wars and live in constant fear for their lives. For them, this truly is good news, perhaps even more than it is for us. Okay, so that's peace, let's have a look at happiness. What will happiness be like in the future kingdom? So let's have a look again at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, and we'll read verses 5 to 6, and then verse 10. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf and stopped. Then shall a lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is primarily talking about, I guess, the end of disabilities. But we see in here the reaction of those who have been healed. It says the lame shall leap and the mute shall sing. Jumping about and singing are obviously outward signs of celebration and happiness, aren't they? And then in verse 10, it talks about everlasting joy and then gladness. And that the opposite of these, sorrow and sighing, will be no more. But what about those of us who aren't currently affected by this? Well, you might sometimes um, read or watch stuff about the work of charities helping those who are disabled or who need help. And it can be upsetting to to read or to see people in this state. We like to hear positive news. News about, about getting an operation to make people better, to help them walk again rather than being in a wheelchair, that sort of thing. So for everyone in the kingdom, seeing no more problems of this sort should fill everyone with joy and celebration. And continuing this thought process, let's have a look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, and we'll read from verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, We get the establishment of the kingdom likened to being a wedding. Clearly this is telling us that this will be a very happy time indeed. We then get the same idea about healing of the world's problems which affect mankind today. God will wipe all tears from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain even. Okay, so finally for this section, looking at the future kingdom, let's have a look at some aspects of this third word, salvation, of being saved. So first of all, let's go just to the next chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, the last chapter of the whole Bible. Revelation 22 and reading from verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And of course, Jesus called himself the the water of life too. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign for ever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, Clearly this links closely to the previous chapter and aspects of happiness, but I wanted to focus on words like healing and life, words which contrast with our experiences today of decay and death, both of humankind and of our planet, Everything will be so utterly transformed that it likens the future to having no night at all, but only daytime. Our final few verses for this section are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we can look at the effects of death and how we have the prospect of being changed by being associated with Jesus. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read from verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a way of describing death in the Bible. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this talks about those who are in Christ having the promise of being made alive, either by being made immortal if they are still alive when he returns to the earth, or by being raised from the dead. Death itself is described as an enemy which will be destroyed. Once death is no more, there are no more enemies left to fight, and the world will be totally perfect. These are all clearly amazing things to look forward to, and yet they are all in the future. We aren't immortal, instead we all face death. We can't be healed beyond temporary improvements. We live in a world where tears are cried, where mourning happens. It is a world full of war, sadness and lacking a genuine saviour. The prospect of peace, happiness and salvation would seem to be very much in the future. But does that have to be the case? I mentioned earlier that another way of interpreting Jesus' words When he said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is that of it being close in terms of distance rather than time. Although Jesus ruling a kingdom on earth is something still in the future, we believe that he is king right now, ruling from heaven. And so if we accept him as king ahead of the rulers of the countries here on earth, then we are in effect part of his kingdom right here and now. So what does this mean in practical day-to-day terms for how we live our life? Well, let's have a look at one of Jesus' well-known speeches, and it's in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's how Matthew always describes what the other gospel books simply call the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I see this linking what we do and how we act now to a future promise. Think about about some of those traits which Jesus said will be blessed by God. Some of them are aspects which we know will be alleviated in the future and as we've already thought about, such as those who are poor, those who mourn and those who are persecuted. Other traits are those that we look for now and which we know will happen in the future, such as being hungry and thirsty for righteousness and trying to be a peacemaker. Others are things which can be achieved now, such as being merciful and pure in heart How we are now and how closely we align to what God wants his kingdom to be will determine how much we want to be in the future kingdom and how likely it is that God's grace will allow us to experience that. So I want us now to look at aspects of those three words that we've looked at already this afternoon of peace, happiness and salvation in the context of our current lives. So let's look first of all at uh, 2 Thessalonians thinking first of all about the word peace. 2 Thessalonians, it's just one verse, chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, clearly this is a different sort of peace. But we can make very, we can make very little impact in um, ourselves in making the world peaceful. But we can have peace of mind. And this verse at the end of one of Paul's letters, but something definitely relevant to us too, says that the Lord of Peace, speaking about Jesus, who you remember Isaiah describes as the Prince of Peace, will give us peace by being with us. Having peace of mind means being reassured that whatever happens, we can have a future to look forward to, and can therefore live our lives at the moment in a way which pleases God. My other reference about peace refers to how we should be as a religious community, and it's in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who were you who once were far, were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The peace referred to here is peace between mankind and God. And it's made possible because Jesus was a sacrifice to cover our sins. And because of this, we can be part of a family of citizens of the kingdom of God, rather than citizens of the country we live in. This family is one which includes the apostles and prophets, in fact, all of the faithful people who have ever lived who God counts as righteous. And together we are described as being a holy temple that God can dwell in. That's an amazing thing, and it's not something just for the future, it's something made possible right now, by taking on the name of Jesus Christ in baptism, and committing to following him, rather than doing whatever pleases us instead. So that's peace within a church, within a a religious community, a community of people who share a faith in God's promises. So now we'll look at how happiness can be ours now. And we'll have a look at John chapter 15. And I'll read from verse 9, which is towards the end of a section where Jesus is telling his disciples to abide in him. John chapter 15, I'm reading from verse 9, where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We know that joy is available to us all. There are things that we can do that we enjoy, but it can be very hollow. Jesus here says that by abiding in his love, as he abides in God's love, and by doing the things which he has commanded us to do, his joy can be in us, and we can have full joy. And this is clearly a different sort of joy than what we might be used to. Um, And our next verse that I'll take us to in 1 Timothy chapter 6 carries on with this, urging us to be content rather rather than wanting things to make us happy. So I'll just read a few verses to you from um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, and from verse 6, where it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with so many pangs. Of course, verse 10 is so often misquoted. It's not money itself that's the root of evil. It's the love of money. That definitely is the root of evil. We need money. But when we spend all of our time and effort trying to make more and more money, this can drag us away from a life of contentment. It can cause us to forget that we should be reliant on God to give us enough to be able to feel contented, rather than being greedy for more. And this is so different to the message the world gives us, isn't it? We get told that we can only be happy by wanting more and more, and then giving in to this want, But by doing this, we never feel contented. We only feel frustrated and unhappy. Okay, so moving on to the the third word again, salvation. Um, So we'll have a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 4. it is the gift of God. This, I think, links together very well aspects of the current day and the future. By God's grace, we have been saved. It's already happened, and yet it also talks about more grace in the coming ages. There are much better things yet to come. So then, what should we do? Well, Mark 16 tells us in no uncertain terms, for both those who have been saved and and those who desire to be saved Mark chapter 16 and I'll just read you a couple of verses from verse 15 again words of Jesus and he said to them go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned if you believe and are baptized then you will be saved If you've already been baptised, then go into the world and proclaim the gospel. Go and preach the good news. That's hopefully a little bit of what I've done this afternoon, showing that there is good news, and not just a sort of silly good news which makes us smile for a few seconds, but good news which can give us peace, happiness and save us, both in this life and in the kingdom to come. Thank you.